And then all the juice cleanses. Those are all over Instagram that people are trying to do those. A juice cleanse. I remember when one of Sarah's friend's mom did a cleanse and it was the one with like water, lemon juice, cayenne pepper, and else. And she drank it for days and she was very haggard and angry when I saw it. She was hangry because she had been drinking nothing but this lemon water with cayenne pepper in it. On the internet there were all these pictures of what would come out of you when you did this. Oh and my god. This, I mean grapefruit diets from ages ago you know people would do that and that's the new thing too. Eating clean where you know you don't add organic, organic yeah. clean yeah. eating. Yeah. Oh what did y'all do over in Hemp Hill that time? Some kind of shots. They called it going to the fat doctor. Yeah, and everybody was doing that. Going to the fat doctor? Yes. Was he a doctor? He had an office. Oh, <laughs> well, it was probably like Adipex. Yeah. Speed. I mean, it was, I'm sure. You mean like enzyme things? But no, I mean like drugs. I didn't. I stopped Stone. <laughs> But a lot of people, it was just... A, it was the thing at the time. Yeah. A lot of people were going. Mm -hmm. How much did it cost? And then, it must have not been very expensive if I did it. It must have been skinny because if it had been fat, I wouldn't have believed that he could help me. And I did Adipex until the woman that you knew was doing it and had all kind of problems. Now, Janelle has tried some cabbage diet. Ugh, that'll make you poop. Low carb. What is the cabbage soup diet? You make cabbage soup and that is what you eat. You replace two meals a day yeah. with it, don't you? They gain it back as soon as they stop doing it. I once worked with someone and their whole life was consumed with what they ate and their exercise, like they would sleep at 7.30 at night to be able to get up in the morning and do the exercise. And she was very tiny, but obsessive about what she ate. But, um, Teenage girls that are anorexic. I have a student who is in sixth grade. And she's just like skin and bones. Sixth grade? Mm -hmm. Do you think that that is like peer pressure kind mm -hmm. of stuff? Or you think I that think is like a, a true... I think it's a control issue for this child. Yeah. I have really thin friends. But it's funny, some of the thinner ones, they don't think that they're good enough. Mm -hmm. so. One time, when I was little, uh, my dad ran it. When I was little, my dad, a man came out of the restaurant. Hello, and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam, and we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Of course, we always want to take a second to thank all of our listeners. You are the reason we're doing this. Viewers like you. Wait, uh, wait are you quoting PBS? It happens. Did you watch too much Wishbone as a child? Is that why I married you? Trick question. So yes, we are doing this for our viewers, listeners like you. And we would like to continue doing so. This is not a pledge drive. We really are just saying thanks. If you don't mind, go and rate and review. I know if you're subscribed to the show, iTunes is a jerk about letting you review it. If you search it, 
you can review that way. It is a real pain. I try to review other people's podcasts and it takes time out of my day. So if you could do that for us, it would warm my heart and we will toast you on our next show. And one other thing, we do have a new project up that we will put a link to in our information, but you can also search it and it's called Audio Dime Museum. It is in fact called Audio Dime Museum and you will recall our dime special that we did. You should have lots of links and pointers in that specific episode. So go back and check that out if you haven't had a chance to yet. This is our new experiment. This has been a labor of love. It's kind of an experimental storytelling podcast with a focus on historical curiosity and legend. Back to the subject at hand. And what is that, sir? So Sam, I tried this new diet. I'm sure you did. It's not going so well. Did you eat Olaine again? No, anal leakage. Um, That happened to your sister. (laughs) Don't Uh, say that on the but it did but no so i read about this diet and it's where you mostly consume apple cider vinegar Mm -hmm. and water that sounds very refined with a little bit of bread Mm. and you can mix in green tea you did you heard about this yes have you been reading lord byron again maybe (laughs) i told you not to do that anymore you get so melancholy i like being melancholy but you're right, so that is one of the first fad diets. Well, it had a celebrity spokesperson. Of course it was popular. It really is hailed as one of the first celebrity-driven fad diets. Lord Byron was really obsessed with his weight, and he always wanted to look good. Quite um, vain fellow, yeah. A little bit. You know, he'd always have these really strict diets. He'd go and weigh himself, and he would also uh, wear really heavy wool clothing. For what purpose? To try to sweat himself out. That's charming. So he was very, a skinny man with B.O. Sexy. But the heart of a poet. Well, when was this popular? Around 1820, right? Of course, when Lord Byron was around. Right, okay. So fad diets in 1820. What will they think of next? And I suppose that it died out until, you know, TV and the media and young girls were being bombarded with sexualized images of super thin models, right? No, of course not. Of course not. Okay, so what was the next fad well, diet? you are our resident presidential historian i am and so who is large and in charge that's big man taft no mistaking that so when i was a kid my very favorite thing to do was prove people wrong so much has changed and i got into this like betting war with my sister's father-in-law who was this incredible man named mr tom and he had this great library like a real library he collected winston churchill memorabilia and painted tin soldiers in his spare time one day when I was about three, asked me who the first president was. And I said George Washington because I was a smart kid. And he's like, well, who was the second president? And I didn't know. So I immediately asked for a book on the subject and began memorizing the presidents. And by the time I was four, I knew them all. You would probably be on Ellen now. I would be on Ellen. I was a genius. I missed my chance. And then I normalized. I don't know what happened. But, uh, But so anyway, my favorite presidential fact as a child was that William Taft got stuck in the White House bathtub. And that's not an urban legend. No, that is absolutely true fact, as quoted by presidential historian. Is that you? That's me, yeah. So Taft got stuck in the tub, and it was headlines everywhere. How could it not be? It's like Bush choking on the pretzel. Or Obama being shirtless in Hawaii. I mean, these are things the world needs to know. So, yes, he got stuck in the bathtub, and it caused quite a frenzy. 
and he decided to try and reduce, as they called it. And he lost around 60 pounds, and he said that no true gentleman would ever weigh more than 300 pounds. It was interesting. They had actually a physician went and analyzed the letters that he wrote with his doctor about his diet and exercise Mm -hmm. habits and bowel movements and things and looked at it compared to modern day diet and exercise advice. And it was pretty legitimate. Lean meats, veggies, don't eat too much. You're fat because you eat too much. Exercise. Things like that. And it was, it was actually like really legitimate. And he lost weight. He did. He lost 60 pounds. Gained it back. We don't talk about that, okay? And I'm not making any presidential poop jokes. Another diet fad that would make Don Draper proud. Oh, that's was, the Lucky Strike diet, isn't yes, it? Yeah, in yeah, 1925, yeah. they started advertisements with the slogan, reach for a lucky instead of a sweet, much healthier for you. Well, I mean, they also had doctors and Santa smoking cigarettes, so mm-hmm. they were playing up the health angle. Thank God somebody said it, right? And then you have, in 1930, the grapefruit diet. That's still around. Yeah. That, mom, that, I remember my mom doing this. I remember my mom doing this, too. And I, there was a long time when I was a kid that I would eat grapefruits like crazy. Trying to lose weight? No, I just liked them. They were bitter. That explains a lot. Yeah. More my favorite diet stories and it's questionable if it is an urban legend or not is the tapeworm diet sounds promising yeah this is one that really is credited to lots of different actresses and opera singers of the time and it's where you would purposefully infect yourself with a tapeworm so that they would consume a lot of your nutrients and you'd lose weight so it's like diet smarter, not harder? Yeah, it would work. It's extremely unhealthy. Way hey, wait, okay. I think we need to do a little disclaimer here. Dr. Jake, do you endorse the tapeworm diet? Only if you buy it from my website. At, <laughs> no, no, um, no. Oh, okay. No, you don't. Okay, I don't. Stop I endorsing do the not, tapeworm diet. Do not endorse the tapeworm diet. Check out my website. You know, I did a quick Google out of curiosity, and you can definitely buy this online. Now, if it's real. Like, if it's a real tapeworm. Right, who knows? It may just be a pill. Yeah. Did you? I'm not going to disclose that. The vinegar diet didn't work, okay? <laughs> okay. So there are a few things that I Google when I'm sad. One of them is bad taxidermy. Another is beautiful libraries. And the third is offensive vintage advertisements. These just pick me up when I'm feeling down. You have this kind of rush on dieting in women's magazines and things around the 1940s. And some of them are just unbelievable. There are ads for obesity soap. And you are supposed to just use it like regular soap. And it will just make the pounds wash right off of you. That's nice. It's only 25 cents. You can also purchase that on our website. (laughs) And then there is one that they're reducing tablets is what they are. And the tagline for them is fat is not good flesh. Oh my. Why not rid yourself of unsightliness and discomfort? And it also wants us to know that they can be taken anytime without inconvenience and they're made wholly of roots and herbs with no chemicals. This doesn't sound familiar at all. No, it doesn't. So if I were following one of these diets in these old women's magazines, let's say I wanted to just go on a detox diet. I've heard a lot about this. Mm, A detox diet. Well, you have the two-day option, which is the jolt-off pounds diet. If you need to lose a few pounds quickly. So if you have a little bit more patience and you're not interested in the two-day detox, there's also a seven-day detoxification diet that rids your body of poisons. Oh, Um, good. Not poisons. mm -hmm. And it's only 25 cents. 
Well, see, I really like sweets. Oh, no. You're going to have to do a dehydration diet. Oh, that sounds good. It's the fastest and most pleasant of all. So just not drink water and eat lots of candy? I think so. I can do that. And I had this, like, waddle going on. If you had a double chin and you were thought of as fat, no matter what your weight, you can get help for just 25 cents. They have a special diet that's called How to Rid of a Double Chin. I have a quarter. Then you can have one less chin. All these diets are so ridiculous and so funny to see how this wording is still used today. I mean, there's like a one day all liquid diet I'm looking at. You know, medicine did try to catch up with this trend and weight loss really came into the medical realm with Dexatrim and Finfen, kind of related to amphetamines. And both were used very widely until they were both found to cause major medical problems, with Dexatrim increasing your risk of strokes and Finfen causing heart valve prolapses. Oh god. So there are plenty of diets around now. You can go to any kind of bookstore and see diet books, diet books, diet books, diet books. Mm -hmm. And there are really two different big categories i think that you can split them up between you've got your deprivation diet don't eat right you're cutting something out you're cutting your calories okay so it's either like watching your calorie intake or depriving yourself of some specific food and then you also have your kind of healthy eating diet and some of these are extremely legitimate of course like vegetarianism extremely healthy diet but then it goes into your more extreme things and i'll let you just fill in the blank there eating these things or not eating these things makes you a good person definitely so you know eating very pure and wholesome food so like is that including diets observed for religious reasons would those go in that category or like eating kosher Well, I think that's something that you would separate because that's done for a very cultural, religious reason. Okay, so it's not just abstaining from some food for moral reasons? Well, there are some links there because you do have that you're doing it to be more of a devout, pure person. Mm -hmm. But this is more related to eating purely for purity's sake. Okay, that makes sense to me. So, do diets work? Um, no. They don't. And of course, when we say diet, we mean like a fad diet, a lose 18 pounds in 18 days kind of diet. And they're extremely unsuccessful. Over 98% failure rate, according to the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. Because these are not sustainable things that one's doing. It's not choosing a healthy lifestyle. It's depriving yourself of something. And then once those 18 days are over of your cabbage soup diet you immediately go back to picking up in and out burger i want in and out burger that sounds good on it an interesting note is that the diet industry is huge the amount of money they make is just astounding 2010 it was estimated that the diet industry made 60.9 billion dollars with a b in profits that's like almost as much as porn so essentially These fad diets don't work. Right, but you can see they've been around forever. And they really got a huge start at the end of the kind of 1800s. Right, as soon as people weren't having to go out and farm and provide their own sustenance, they started worrying about what they were putting in their bodies. You see this get legs in the early 20th century. Like a lot of things that were kind of taking off in the early 20th century, there were some extremists. Yeah, and of course, there's still extremists in this. But this extremist 
was the extremist of the extremist. We can't talk about crazy diets without talking about starvation heights. What's starvation heights? Well, it's a sanitarium. Is that his real name? No, it's actually called Wilderness Heights. It's located in Washington State in Oala. And it was run by a woman, a female physician. Heavens to Betsy. Well, that was really rare at that time. You know, they really did not let women into med school. Well, she didn't go to med school. Oh, sounds legitimate. Continue. Okay. Her name was Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard. Doctor. If anyone called her Mrs., she would say, no, 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 I'm Dr. Hazard. Mrs. Hazard is my mother-in-law. Did she really say that? She really did. Okay. (laughs) So... She did a little training as an osteopathic nurse when she was living in Minnesota and for some reason promoted herself to the rank of doctor and started using this title kind of for unknown reasons. We don't know why she inflated her resume the way she did, but she firmly believed she was a doctor. Now, she and her husband relocated to Washington from Minnesota after he was released from prison for serving a sentence for bigamy. Bigamy? Yeah. Is that like polygamy? He was kind of married when they met, and she kind of talked him into getting married again, and the state of Minnesota sort of frowned on that, and he had to go to a little time in prison. So she's already kind of starting as a con woman right away. Yeah, she was. And she was working as a fasting specialist under the name Dr. Linda Burfield in Minnesota before their move. She'd worked with a man named Edward Hickey Dewey. I'm serious, that really is his name. Sounds made up. But he was a fasting specialist as well. And she got a little too extreme for his liking, and they kind of parted ways. So fasting. Tell me about this fasting specialist. She would tell you not to eat. Well, I could do that. Yeah, that's pretty I, mean, I could be a doctor. Maybe you could. She basically just told people not to eat. So she moved to Washington State mm-hmm. and to found a sanitarium. Yes, she did. And she was actually granted a medical license because there was a weird loophole, like a lot of licensing requirements were coming around for doctors at this time and they were kind of trying to grandfather in some people who had already been practicing alternative osteopathic medicine in the state before these requirements came down and she got on board with that and so she got to be a doctor had a legitimate medical license oh good Mm-hmm. so what did she do with this legitimate medical license well she continued to practice her extreme form of fasting as a cure-all. Now, the reasons that she and her former mentor kind of diverged were that she believed it was wholly and completely necessary while people were undergoing her starvation cure, as she called it, to administer enemas, or the internal bath, as she called it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so these would last for hours, and they would use up to 12 quarts of water. So what was she doing this? Well, at first, her sanitarium wasn't built, right? Because she didn't have the money to finance this giant project. But after one of the patients under her care died, not from starvation, obviously, that would be ridiculous, but from some pre-existing condition, it turned out that he was a very benevolent soul and he left all of his worldly goods to her. So kind of him. So kind of him. So she used that money to finance the construction of the sanitarium in a rural area of Washington. Before that, she had an office in the city that people would come to, and she would also rent out apartments for them and provide nurses to take care of them in random apartments around the city. So besides the enemas 
and the starvation. Was there anything else involved? The massage. And I put massage in giant scare quotes because it's fucking scary. <laughs> she would pound patients in the forehead, chest, back, and stomach with her fist delivering full force blows and screaming, eliminate, eliminate. Oh, that sounds effective. It sounds like a Dalek is what it sounds like. <laughs> that would make me not want to eat. I know. Some woman punching me in the gut. She would do this daily and she would do the enemas and she would also give them scalding hot baths, which she thought would remove toxins from their skin. So all of this was done to allow the digestive tract to rest and remove impurities from the blood. Uh, removing impurities. This seems like a trend. Yeah. She's all about removing impurities. And so what, do they eat anything? From the documentation we have, it seems that they were allowed eight ounces of either tomato or asparagus broth each day and two ounces of orange juice, but not each day. Their systems just couldn't take it. And if anyone ever tried to give patients food, she would come and start screaming at them, don't you know that at this point in the fast, food will kill them? Yeah, that's what will kill them. Yeah. Who the hell did she get to sign up for this? Well, her favorite patients were people who were not United States citizens. But she did take some citizens on as well. But she would start doing correspondence with various people who'd read her book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, and giving them advice and counseling them. And if she found out that they were particularly wealthy or foreign nationals, she would pursue bringing them out to her sanitarium, which was not yet built. But, you know, with the promise that as soon as it's built, they could have their very own cabin at the Wilderness Heights Sanitarium. And she would cure them of all disease. So how did you get the name Starvation Heights? Well, apparently... She demanded that everyone walk for as long as they were able during the fasting process because she believed that it was necessary for keeping their strength up. So she would, you know, have these people who were consuming tomato broth and orange juice walk miles every day and they would go down the hill and the townspeople would see these like skeletons, you know, moving around and they knew that the woman did fasting. They caught on and started calling it Starvation Heights. The place was called that before any foul play was ever suspected. Foul play? Eaten. Skosh. Please elaborate. Well, you see, she had a rather high mortality rate. I can't imagine. People started dropping like flies. Dropping pounds? No, dropping oh, yes. off the face <laughs> of the earth. But yeah, that too. 45 plus patients died while under her care. Not her fault. Not her fault. I mean, they came to her as a last resort for various pre-existing conditions. And so if they happened to die while they were there, it's like she can't be blamed for the fact that they were already dying and she just happened to get in the way. She had quite a few unfortunate patients and she avoided any suspicion from authorities by working with a man at a funeral home. She had a deal with him that any of her patients that died she would bring to his funeral home and use the money which she inherited from them almost all of them named her as the sole beneficiary in their wills isn't that crazy wow they must have really loved her yeah i think that they were just so fond of her that they didn't know what they would do without her and decided to keep giving her money for tomatoes and asparagus because really what other expenses could there be 
she would cut him in on it if he would let her bring the bodies there and let her do the autopsies and not notify anybody. Hold on. Do the autopsies? As a minimally trained osteopathic nurse, she obviously had a very comprehensive knowledge of practical anatomy. I'm sure. And so she would do autopsies on her patients and she would pull out all their organs and put them in jars. And there were reports that there were like jars of livers and kidneys and things in a storage room in her house and stuff. So she, she did autopsies and she would always find that the cause of death was obviously not starvation and she would sign the death certificate. Isn't that a neat little operation? It just it works out perfectly. Well, in, in addition to that, incredibly, all of her patients despite whatever they might have told their family for all of the years leading up to their enrollment in her illustrious program, would generally recant their wishes for burial and decide to be cremated. Again, so convenient. Mm-hmm. So this all stayed pretty hush-hush because Dr. Hazard had a pretty neat little setup. Her husband was a West Point graduate who spoke multiple languages and actually worked as a professor for some years. And he had a knack for mimicking other people's language. And he would forge documents and take care of all the legal aspects of everything. She would inherit the money of her patients and she would take them to Butterfield's funeral home. She would do the autopsy. She would sign the death certificate. It was never starvation, you understand. So how did this get out? One day... Linda happened upon two very wealthy English sisters who were unmarried and had no other siblings and really only had each other in the whole world, and they both wanted to come partake in her cure. And their names were Claire and Dorothea Williamson. They were in their early 30s, and they had family in the Pacific Northwest, distant family, uncles and things. They had been in Vancouver and kind of heard about her and got her book, and they started corresponding with her. And one of them was like, I have gas sometimes. And the other one was like, and I have a weird uterus thing. She's like, I can fix that, but you need to come here. So they did. They went to Awala, and they enrolled in her program. And while they were able to, this happened in February of 1911. So in the beginning, they were well enough to come into her office every day for their massages and their internal baths. Makes me shiver. I know. I hate that and word. Not, not in the light. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about the internal bath is that Dr. Hazard herself had had some health problems when she was younger. And the only way that she could eliminate waste was by using an internal bath. So it's well, like Claire and Dora would come to her office until they were no longer able to make the trip because their bodies were becoming weakened from starvation. And then she moved them into a neat little apartment and appointed a home health nurse to come take care of them. And then in mid-April, they were taken by ambulance to the ferry and put out on a private launch and taken to the newly completed Wilderness Heights Sanitarium where they were both installed in their own private cabins, which were, by the way, open air and basically hovels, kept from seeing one another, locked in. They were told that their money and jewels were not safe and that Dr. Hazard needed to take control of all that. And she somehow got power of attorney and managed to drain their bank accounts and take all their jewelry and lock it away in her own personal safe. And then Claire died. Oh, no. She died, and she weighed less than 50 pounds when she died. Holy cow. Dora was not allowed to see her because Dr. Hazard feared that might be too upsetting. Also, oddly enough, Dr. Hazard kept coming by and telling her, do you see that cliff over there? I keep worrying that you're going to jump off of it. 
<laughs> oh my god. She was a creepy ass woman. She had basically taken full control of Dora after Claire's death and seemed fully intent on her not recovering from her pre-existing illnesses. No one's really sure how Claire managed to do it, but before the time of her death, she wired their old nurse or governess in Australia and said, hi, come help, basically. And this is really unusual because Dr. Hazard kept a lockbox on the mail. Patients, I almost said prisoners, (laughs) patients' communications were very restricted. But this woman came and, and was informed upon her arrival that Claire had died and was taken to Butterfields to view the body, at which time she said, that is not Claire. Who was it? She doesn't know. She said it looked nothing like Claire, and the woman was not starved. She contacted the uncle who lived on the West Coast and was like, you need to come, and he came and asked to see the body and was presented with the body and said, that's not Claire. So... There's some suspicion that she drummed up a dummy body because one of the nurses saw Claire after she died at Wilderness Heights and said that she was on an ironing board, which the body's light enough to lay on an ironing board. And she said she was skeletal and weighed less than 50 pounds. So none of this is adding up. And so the nurse goes in there and has to basically James Bond the surviving sister out and she weighed less than 60 pounds at the time that she left wilderness heights but because she survived dr hazard against all odds she was able to go to the british consul in washington and they got an attorney and they made sure that dr hazard faced charges so was she convicted she was she was convicted of manslaughter the manslaughter of claire williamson now the trial was highly dramatic The woman is highly insane. And I highly recommend that you go and check out Greg Olson's book on this topic. It's called Starvation Heights. And he's a very engaging true crime historian. And it is very well written. And the audiobook is read by an excellent reader. I suggest you pause now and go do that so you can join me in fully understanding how fucking nuts this woman is. So, yes, she is convicted after a highly dramatic, highly publicized trial that... Dora Williamson had to pay for herself. Of course. Which is magical. She serves two years in a women's facility, after which time she's released. Later, though her medical license is revoked, and there's no way she can get it back, she's pardoned. By by who? The governor. Why? With the condition that she leave the country. Oh, like, here's a pardon, get the hell out of here? Yes. Okay. So she goes to New Zealand, kills a few people there, Good. Comes back to the United States and starts her sanitarium back up a few years later. So people go to this place? Yes. It's estimated that, like, I think 13 deaths are attributed to her after her conviction. Holy cow. And so what ended up happening to her? Well, the place burned down. Was an angry patient the one that did it? I think her husband did it for insurance money. He was an alcoholic. He would drink vanilla extract every day, which... Her big condition for stopping the fast was that the patient's breath smells sweet. So I know what that is. Okay. That's actually a real thing. Okay. What do you mean it's a real thing? So whenever you go into ketosis, Uh which is something that happens when your body is starving or not properly metabolized sugars, then you go into ketosis, which is the burning of the fat in your body. Mm -hmm. And that causes you... To breathe out ketones, and it causes your breath to be sweet. So this is something you can actually see in diabetics 
who are going through a diabetic ketoacidosis, kind of like a diabetic crisis, whenever usually their insulin's off or they've been sick or something like that. You see, like type 1 diabetics. So that's an actual real thing. I did not know that that was a diagnostic criteria. I just thought it was more of Linda Hazard's crazy. But my theory on him drinking vanilla extract is that he did not want her to make him fast. (laughs) Sure, let's go with that. (laughs) Okay, anyway. You know what? Screw science. (laughs) Let's go with Linda Hazard. Yeah, so people would come to help him put the fire out. And there was some like beautiful handwork around the door, like some carving around the door. And one of the guys was like, let me save that. You can keep it and put it on the next place when you rebuild. And he's like, no, 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 I think that's insured. Reasonable suspicion that he had done this. So the place burns down and then eventually she gets sick and she's like, this will be the greatest testament to my cure of all time. I shall cure myself. Oh, this sounds like it's going to go well. She died. Oh, good. Of starvation. And she didn't get to fill out her own death certificate, so... No no self-autopsy. No, no, unfortunately. Even Linda Hazard couldn't pull that off. So that is so freaking nuts. Yeah, I think 40-plus victims is what it totals up to. That's crazy. At this time, these kind of health retreats were very popular. There were lots of different forms of it. Um, This is like mineral baths and that kind of hot springs. Yeah, very popular in like Arkansas. And then, of course, FDR really popularized it. Um, They were all over the country. There's one in Texas. But one of the people that started this health retreat and possibly coined the term sanitarium, which was a take on a sanatorium, Mm -hmm. which is where you would send like TB patients. Exactly. To get better. And but the sanitarium was like a health retreat, somewhere you can go to get healthy. So it's like sanitary. And that man's name is Doctor John Harvey Kellogg. Like Frosted Flakes. Exactly. What? Yeah. So this is the Kellogg of Kellogg cereal fame. With the rooster and everything. Kind of. Technically, his brother added the sugar and started the company. But he is the one that invented cornflakes. But let's backtrack a little bit. Okay. So he was a real doctor. Like an MD? Like went to medical school. Right, but medical school back then was very different than what medical school is now. And so he started a sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. Okay. Which is still where the headquarters of Kellogg's cereal is. Interesting side note. If you look up Dr. Kellogg on like Wikipedia... None of this information is going to be on there. The <laughs> Kellogg PR guy is great at his job. Kudos. I've got to dig or watch the great movie, which is where I found out about this years ago, called Road to Wellville. Oh, that's like the one with Ferris Bueller and... And Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins plays Dr. John Kellogg, and it is very much a kind of farcical take on this, but it is interesting either way and so dr john harvey kellogg was a seventh day adventist oh and so this was a popular movement at the time and they have some really interesting ideas and they're still around now Um, they're kind of the original creationist they really like pushed that very early on they're about all about the second coming and they were really big into the holistic human nature they did not believe in any sort of immortal soul no consciousness after death, no hell. If you were a bad person, you were just permanently destroyed. And so they also believed in following kosher laws. Cool. And vegetarianism. Yeah. They very strongly encourage it. 
They also avoided caffeine, alcohol, tobacco. And so with some of these tenants... Fun. They avoided fun. That's what you're saying. They're avoiding everything we're doing right now. So with some of these tenants and his strong background medical training, he founded the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And this was, like I said, a health retreat where he encouraged a lot of different things. Some of these things, quite legitimate. Some... Quite insane. He described uh, the methods of his sanitarium as a composite psychological method comprising hydrotherapy, phototherapy, thermotherapy, electrotherapy, mechanotherapy, dietetics, physical culture, cold air cure, and health training. So basically anything with a therapy at the end of it. He was all in. I don't know what any of these therapies are. So some of these things, very legitimate. Hydrotherapy... Still use that. What is that? So using like bathing, doing exercises in water, water jet treatment, things like that. Okay, that sounds fine enough. Yeah, phototherapy actually still used. UV therapy is used. Seasonal affective disorder. But then some of these things absolutely ridiculous. Like mechanotherapy and they'd be the kind of thing where it moved you so you'd be exercising. Oh, like the belts, those things? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Kind of like that. I don't think you actually had that belt thing. I mean, some things, again, legitimate physical culture meaning like just exercise he encouraged open air sleeping as well and also a big part of his treatment was just this healthy diet like it's vegetarian low protein low fat he's actually one of the inventors of granola where he put you know oatmeal and cornmeal and baked it into a biscuit there's lots of nuts and he yeah, invent- there's lots of nuts. Yeah, there's lots of And he invented like kind of a cornflake like cereal. Of course, you wouldn't be eating it with milk. No milk? No milk. Dry. No sugar either. This guy is no fun. <laughs> this is a very bland diet. He was also really big into enemas. Weren't they all? It seems like it. But his enema even had a special twang to it. Oh no. It was a yogurt enema. And so they would actually take yogurt. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, so they would actually take yogurt from both ends. They would eat half of it by mouth and the other half via the other end. Of course, very healthy for you. Although now I'm thinking about it, it could introduce good live cultures to the intestinal tract and actually maybe be effective. Hmm. To sign up for my yogurt enema cure. <laughs> Stop people you endorse bad things okay i just like the image of like they eat half of it and then the other half is taken away like i just i would just be really hungry all the time and accidentally eat too much of my yogurt another thing on the cereal i think it's kind of interesting is that he developed the cornflake like i said his brother is the one that added the sugar and kind of invented the company the kellogg company and sold it one of his patients was cw post they're great. That post? Yep. Post cereal. So he thought this was a great idea. And he's like, I'm going to do this too. <laughs> Clever lad. Yes, yes. One of the great legacies that he has, besides changing our breakfast diets. And yogurt enemas. And yogurt enemas. Is this pamphlet or kind of book pamphlet that he wrote called Plain Facts for Old and Young. That sounds charming. And this was something where he did like a lot of research on, honestly, I actually read this. It's available on Google Books if you'd like to read a scanned copy. Highly recommend it for good laughs. But he was really, really had a problem with anything to do with sex. 
Yeah, I actually, now that I'm looking at this, I've read about Kellogg, too, not in this field, not in the field of dietetics, but in his crazy-ass sex weirdness. Yeah, and so he thought that sex was extremely detrimental to your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. He never had sex, supposedly. He was married. They adopted a lot of children. But that he, was nice of him. Yeah, he and his wife kept separate bedrooms. And he thought this was a great idea that everybody should do. In quoting this book, he said that sexual excess can cause many forms of indigestion, general ill health, and hypochondriasis. And even preached that one could have marital excess and that one should only have sex to procreate. And that talked about how terrible this was for husbands. All this kind of BS about sperm degenerating your life force or whatever. But <laughs> a great quote, I think, that you will enjoy. If husbands are great sufferers, as we have seen, wives suffer even more terribly, being a feebler constitution and less able to handle the frequent shock which is suffered by the nervous system. I think if it's a shock to your nervous system, you may be putting things where your yogurt goes. Yeah, that's probably a shock to your nervous system while yogurt. He also, of course, was huge against masturbation. Yeah, he thought that was worse than sex. Right, and he wrote, If illicit commerce of the sexes is a heinous sin, self-pollution is a crime doubly abominable. I love the term self-pollution. Oh, no. You know, he linked masturbation to general infirmity, defective development, mood swings, fickleness, bashfulness, boldness. So it can either make you bashful or bold. I don't know. Basically, any character at all can be attributed. All right. Bad posture, stiff joints, fondness for spicy foods, acne, palpitations, and epilepsy. And then, of course... He didn't want any spice on his diet because he thought it would be arousing. This explains a lot about the Cajun people. He even went as far as to claim that children should be stopped from having any sort of self-stimulation of any kind by any means. Which, as a medical professional, it's completely normal for children to have this kind of self-exploratory behavior. But he even said that you should tie foreskin with silver thread. And applied carbolic acid to the clitoris of young girls so that'd be irritating and not stimulating. Well, he's actually one of the people that's credited with popularizing circumcision in the United States. There was this belief that foreskinned boys were masturbators. And if you didn't have a foreskin, you were less likely to masturbate. And he encouraged doctors to remove foreskin when children were born so that they would not grow up to be masturbators. And somehow that kind of seeped into the cultural consciousness sex researchers have looked into him and decided that he probably had a paraphilia called chlismophilia it is a paraphilia where you receive sexual gratification from enemas yogurt enemas i don't know it's specifically yogurt maybe he liked that tang but you know he would have enemas done Twice every day. You know, if people did this now, it'd be Greek yogurt. It would be Greek yogurt. It's higher in protein. I am talking about Dr. Kellogg getting off to Innovas and you bring up Greek yogurt. John Stamos? I mean, John Stamos makes everybody want to eat Greek yogurt. Maybe John Stamos should endorse Greek yogurt Innovas. 
I would consider it. <laughs> if he administered. I mean, there's like Fuller House. It's big. <laughs> maybe he could like, he uses a springboard for his Greek yogurt enema. Hi, I'm John Stamos. And if you don't want a Fuller House, you should stop having sex and immediately start giving yourself Greek yogurt enemas. Uncle Jesse, have mercy. And so we've gone over gone over two extremely interesting fucking nuts. We've gone over two incredibly knocking futs physicians. But it's interesting because some of their ideas are still extremely prevalent today. Extreme deprivation diets do exist. Right, the first one I think of is like a juice diet. To where you, all you do is just juice fruits and vegetables, and that's supposedly going to make you healthier. Which, like I said, something a vegetarian does is extremely healthy. But taking out a bunch of the nutrients and fiber of your vegetarian diet makes zero sense. And so that's one very popular form of kind of like a deprivation diet. So we're going to just consume liquids, and that's going to make us lose incredible amounts of weight. And it will. Right. But it's an extremely unhealthy way to do it and completely unsustainable. What's your uh, bachelor's degree in again? Uh, nutritional science. Yeah, okay, just, just so we know. So people are depriving themselves of food to become thin. This sounds fairly standard. Right, that is just extremely popular. I mean, there are books and books and books about limiting this and limiting that and limiting your calories on a 1,200-calorie diet and all of that sort of thing. Try to... Lose weight and be healthy. Okay, so does that ever take on a negative form? An extreme form? Right, I mean, one thing you cannot help but think about is anorexia. Mm-hmm. And anorexia is a true medical diagnosis, and it's in the DSM. Ding! We haven't said DSM in, like, several episodes. <laughs> this is, it's been way too long. And Can you get something about Freud in here, please? Oh, uh, sure with the enemas we could. <laughs> anal, he's anal retentive, maybe we say that? Something. Okay. Yeah. We'll avoid for this one just to spare you. You know, anorexia, like I said, is a real medical diagnosis. And it's extremely, extremely dangerous disease. You know, it's something where people have something called body dysmorphism. To where, no matter what, they still feel that they are fat. Mm-hmm. Or that they are a very unhealthy appearance to where they could be 90 pounds still feel that there is some kind of problem of course i'm kind of glazing over what anorexia is it's an extremely detailed diagnosis with a lot of medical criteria and causes a lot of problems in children and in teenagers and women And sometimes is seen in men. I don't want to say that it's just a woman's disease. But it's about 10% of cases of anorexia are in men. They are much more likely to be bulimic. Or have an eating disorder not otherwise specified. So anorexia is a form of extreme food deprivation, correct? With Or with anorexia, that is generally what you would see. Right, and the control issue is a really important part of it. There are some definite OCD personality tendencies. As I was researching this, I saw that something like 30 to 40 million people have eating disorders. Right, it's a really large number. There's definitely a spectrum on there, but... It can cause a lot of harm. I mean, I just want, do want to take a second that if any of our listeners are suffering from this, I really want to encourage you to speak to your physician or psychiatrist or psychologist or 
a friend about it and reach out and try to get some help. Yeah, it, it's a hard thing to live with. We've both known people that were personally affected by it, and it is a genuine problem. So as I was researching this and looking at stats, I found one that was particularly distressing to me, and that is that children under 12 who were presented with eating disorders from 1999 to 2009 increased by 72%. That is really shocking and disturbing. And you have to wonder, what are some of the things that are leading to this? You know, everyone likes to blame media for different problems, especially in kids. But I can't help but think that there can be some kind of link there between the kind of internet age and this shocking increase in the amount of young kids with anorexia and eating disorders. Overall, there has been an increase in the number of presentations of eating disorders as well. So something that I've been aware of for a while that has always really troubled me, and I do believe contributes especially to younger people internalizing a formal eating disorder at a younger age, are pro-anocytes. Are you familiar with pro-anocytes? Yeah, unfortunately I am. These are really disturbing websites that you can very easily find just by searching that are websites and there are YouTube videos, etc. that encourage people to be anorexic. Almost like a support group. It is a support group. I think that that underscores the need for more outreach um, from people who are not necessarily in the eating disorder community to reach out to those that are suffering with this mental illness and be supportive. And this is something that I do see in my clinic on a regular basis. I think that a lot of times people get very judgmental and are like, why don't you just eat something without any understanding of how deep this goes? I think that it shows a need for, you know, more specialized intervention and more of an awareness of what it means. So what are some of the things you can find on Pro Anna website? Like I said, it's very disturbing to look at because it, you know, there are message forums where people are posting their current weight and their goal weight, you know, and commenting, oh my God, if I were as fat as you, I'd kill myself. One woman posted that she was pregnant and posted her current weight. And someone was like, if you allow yourself to get that fat, they should take that baby away immediately and you should just kill yourself. So these are things that people are saying to each other. Another thing is a gallery, usually found on every ProAnna website that I visited, of Thinspiration, which is a very clever name. Kudos on that, whoever came up with it. It's women who are cachectic and, you know, have vertebra visible or clavicles jutting out or a few photos show women like circling their wrist with their fingers and how much space they have oh thigh gap is a big thing on pro anna website i recently saw that there's a trend in asian countries where girls are very proud that their waist is smaller than a piece of paper so like an 8 by 11 paper Mm -hmm. and they hold the paper up in front of their waist to show that their waist is behind it and that you can't see it and that's a big trend on social media there. There are more interactive forums like on Instagram and Tumblr where people are posting photos with a hashtag ProAnna or Thinspiration. And they'll say, you know, the number of likes I get is the number of hours I'll fast. So they've developed more interactive forums and there are things like the number of likes I get is the number of hours I'll fast. And incidentally, that photo had 27 likes. So good luck with that. Um... And there are dieting tips and tips for how to conceal your eating disorder from parents and medical professionals and those that might intervene and stop you from your pursuit of 
thinness. Now, another thing that I found really interesting was on these websites, there are sections devoted to a set of tenets called the Thin Commandments. And there's just a sampling, like, if you aren't thin, you aren't attractive. Thou shalt count calories and reduce intake accordingly. Being thin is more important than being healthy. You must buy small clothes, cut your hair, take laxatives, anything to make yourself look thinner. Being thin and not eating are signs of true willpower and success. Showing that that control is a big part of it. So these are the thin commandments. There are also these like inspirational quotes that are you know, meant to be looked at if you're considering eating and you've already passed your calorie intake for the day. And they start with things like, hey, fat ass. And they tell you how disgusting you are if you eat. So that's very helpful, I assume. So I first came across these sites when I was in college years ago, and they were not as organized and there wasn't as much of an overarching theology as there is now. But that's the right word to use. Anna, pro-Anna, so anorexia or Anna, has been personified as a female. She's become sort of a deity for followers of these websites and this lifestyle. And there are forums and sections on websites that are letters from Anna and letters to Anna. And Anna tells people how worthless they are and only she will be honest with them. And everyone else is just telling what they want to hear. She's the only person that understands them, the only person that will stand by them. And the letters to Anna are like, forgive me, I'm an imperfect being, etc. But some of the quotes that I found that were most troubling in these sections to me, this is this is actually called Anna's Prayer. I shall not be tempted by the enemy, food. I shall not give in to temptation, should it arise. Should I be in a weakened state, and should I cave, I will feel guilty and punish myself accordingly, for I have failed her. I will be thin at all cost. It is the most important thing. Nothing else matters. I will devote myself to Anna. She will be with me wherever I go, keeping me in line. No one else matters. She is the only one who cares about me and who understands me. I will honor her and make her proud. So it really does concern me that this has become almost a religion to people. It's always been related to control and self-deprivation. But that it can even elevate to this level is truly disturbing. It's interesting and saddening to me. There was an article I read where a girl who was in recovery really blamed the Thinspiration sections of websites for helping her escalate her eating disorder as quickly as she did. She was a young girl, 14 at the time, and was hospitalized and had a feeding tube put down her nose. And she'd been taking selfies and posting them on Instagram and found herself becoming almost addicted to this process and very entrenched in the community very early. And there is a lot of research showing that things like Instagram, Facebook, and things can be very addicting. Mm -hmm. Um, And you get that small little pleasure every time you get that little buzz of your phone that you got a like or something like that i mean it does work basically like a slot machine oh for sure because you never know when you're gonna get a like stochasticity she granted an interview to a news agency who proceeded to investigate this trend and they found that there were kids as young as 10 posting in these forums and using this hashtag and communicating with other people about eating disorders uh using instagram i do think that it is contributing to raising awareness and, like I said, formalizing 
these disorders in these younger kids, like maybe the tendencies would all have always been there. You know, you don't want to blame an external source for an internal problem completely. For sure. To be clear, media is not causing this at all. It is reinforcing it. Yes, I completely agree. I do think that this is one way we can look and see that this has really become sort of a modern legend, this lifestyle. You know, other lifestyles that have also become almost uh, legends in their own right is healthy, pure diet. And this really ties back into Kellogg and lots of other people that have been promoting that one can become more pure and more of a perfect person by changing what they eat. So if Linda Hazard is the poster child for the pro-Anna movement, and Kellogg is the poster child for what? Well, something called orthorexia. That sounds made up. Oh, it kind of is. Okay. <laughs> but you have to remember that everything starts that way. It was a term coined by a physician in 1997, and he's a psychologist that was concerned with a trend he was seeing in his patients. And that was this fixation on eating clean, or righteous eating, as the translation would be. So Dr. Bratman is the one that coined it, and he said that orthorexia is defined as an unhealthy obsession with healthy food. So an important point that he says is it's not the diet that is orthorexia, it's the diet that can lead to it. The more extreme or restrictive the diet, the more likely it could lead to orthorexia. So I'm sure you could think of plenty of people in your Facebook feed that you're friends with in high school that have some odd health trend that they're always talking about and posting about and posting pictures of their food that seems absolutely insane, but they claim is a pure diet. And since they've been doing it, they felt amazing. So it's like when diet becomes identity. Right. It's when diet becomes an obsession. So when dying becomes the only thing that you're worried about, and as with any psychological disorder, as I stated before, it has to affect your everyday life. It has to cause some kind of problem. So being a true vegetarian, although it can be annoying whenever someone constantly tells you that they are a vegan, and this is that they cannot have this certain food, um, something like that can be very healthy if it's done in a healthy way. But something where you are changing your diet and your entire life is encompassed by it and it affects what you do and your everyday activities and are just surrounded by what you're going to eat is something that can cause a huge problem. A lot of these diets you can do in a healthy way, but some of the things that were cited are like raw foodists and people that will not eat anything that is cooked, only raw food because it is more pure. Okay. And so that purity myth is an important aspect of it and that is your motivation so it's important to point out that this could really be linked to anorexia and a lot of people that suffer from anorexia really have a lot of these thoughts i have actually witnessed people in the process of recovering from anorexia that have moved to very restrictive diets as a means to still exert control and display willpower but start putting calories in their body because their body is eating itself. Right, and it's very common for anorexics to move in today. You know, my work at the Student Health Center on a college campus, I saw that a lot. 
girls that came in after being in inpatient treatment facilities for anorexia coming out and still able to kind of funnel that restriction into a healthy diet, an extreme of vegetarianism or veganism or something like that. Yeah, and I actually think that that is progress for those people. But for some people who were not diet obsessed before, who acquire this obsession through a fixation on a specific diet, it seems like it could be very detrimental. Right, and it's and the concern is that someone that can start with an orthorexia can transfer to an anorexia. Now, why should we be so concerned about anorexia? Because it's an extremely dangerous disorder it can cause so many lasting medical effects and it's truly the deadliest psychological disorder there is i was looking at the numbers and something like four percent of all people who present with anorexia die as a result right it's similar numbers for bulimia and for eating disorders not otherwise specified that's actually 5.09 percent So this is not just like, oh, these girls, they'll get over it. It's just a phase. It's not something to just pass off lightly. Like, it can be a life-altering thought pattern that can leave permanent damage on your body. Right. And so these crazy fad diets, are they just a story? Yeah. It's just a story. 